tell you straight up, um, kind of the goals and some of my heart on this, I know this will not be easy for some of you, and you have to wrestle with this kind of thing. But here's, here's my goals. First of all, I want to talk about love, sex, dating, and, and marriage from a biblical perspective. Okay, so, so kind of let that melt a little bit. And here's my goal. I hope to speak wisdom and life into everyone. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, wisdom and life. This is not about judgment. I'm, please believe me. I mean, I know some of your private lives a little bit. You share with me, or I, it's obvious kind of things. I'm not doing this with a judgmental spirit. I'm doing this with, um, I just embrace God's wisdom. Embrace the life that he offers. Now, you have to figure out between you and God what that means. Right? I'm, I'm going to present some things, but you get, you get to be the ones to figure it out. So this is going to go for five weekends together. Um, on the fourth weekend, which is March 3rd and 4th, we are going to have, I'm hoping, we're going to find the right people, a panel discussion with, I'm thinking, three couples up here, and we're going to ask them questions that you generate. So when you came in today, you got a little white card, right? So that's your white card that you get to use to help me do this. You're going to write down questions that you might have, from which I will probably almost exclusively probably almost exclusively, right? Choose your questions. And then on the other side, I want you to write down couples that go to Crosswinds. It doesn't help us if they go to Autumn Ridge or something. Couples that go here to Cro- that you respect and you think they would be awesome as a part of that panel discussion. And Doug should ask them, this way I can leverage it. I can go like 40 people, put your names down. How can you disappoint the masses, right? So that's, that's kind of the goal. So when you get that card filled out at the end of the service with and as many questions and as many couples as you want to write down, then you're going to put it, there's a basket out in the welcome table out there. Just put it in there, and it'll go into the hopper. And then I'll keep collecting questions, um, and I'll start working on recruiting those three people for a month from now. Okay, so, so that's what's taking place. So today's message is called Marriage, Outdated, or God's Best. Right? And by the way, that's actually the decision I want you to think about in your life. Is this outdated, this whole idea of marriage, or is this God's best? Right? Now, let me just put in a caveat right from the very beginning. If you are single, right, I am not, when I use the words God's best, I'm not saying you are incomplete because you're single. I'm saying, you know, if you're going to be in a relationship, and is it God's best to get, to get married? Because believe me, people who are married, they look at you, single person, and they go, you have some advantages, Believe me, believe me, because you don't have to ask permission of anybody to do anything, right? You don't have to cooperate. It's just, I mean, you do in life, but you don't at home, right? And at home, our lives are cooperating and permission all the time. But, but, but single people, I know most of us who are single will look at married people and go, I have a sense of a little bit of envy and jealousy because they have some, some real advantages, and there are some real advantages. You know, I, I've got someone to talk to when I go home, and she reminds me that I'm not completely crazy, right? But I'll, how would I know if it wasn't for her? You know, because you guys just tell me I'm nuts. All right, moving on. So marriage, outdated to God's best. And here's why it's an issue. Marriage has changed. You, you may not believe me, but by the time we're done, the next 15 minutes here, you're going to go, okay, marriage has really changed. Let me rewind the clock to the 1800s. My great-great-great-grandfather, George McAllister. I know he wasn't a Mathers, my mother's side, okay? So McAllister, generations ago, 
was in Scotland, got on a boat. He was ballast for the ship. The ship came to the St. Lawrence Seaway, right? This little 16, 17-year-old George. The captain, when they're still, they're not even docked. They're, they're in the St. Lawrence Seaway. He turns to all of these immigrants on the boat, illegal immigrants, on the boat, and he said, he said, off you go. They, there's no gang flight. They left all their belongings behind, everything they brought for this new life in the new world. They jumped in the water, and they swam to Canada. Right? So he's 16, 17, so, I can't imagine, soaking wet, climbing up on the rocks. Oh, what do you do now? He, he somehow found, um, I'm blanking out the word, blacksmith. And he became an apprentice for a blacksmith. Right? And he started to work in, in the Quebec area. And then he heard about free land to the west of Toronto, a place called Guelph. Whoever heard of Guelph? And he moved there. If you clear the land, they'd audit it, and the land would be yours to farm. So he put together this farm. And somewhere along the way, and I don't know how he did it, he found a wife. And they, well, he found a woman, and they got married, and he became, she became a wife. And they, they did something everybody was doing because they had lots of children, like 15 of them. Right? Why did they have 15? Because children were an asset at that time. Today? <laughs> you can do the math. Why? Why? That was even funny. Come on. Every child is hurt in the room. All right, so, so today it's different, right? So 15 kids. Now, they, those 15 kids grew older up like kids do, and down the road, about a mile, there was another family with the last name of Elliot. And they had like mm, 15 kids. And between those two families, eight kids from each side married each other. Okay? Why? I want you to hold on to that question. Let's fast forward the clock a little bit. So generations later, right? The Mathers children, I have two older brothers and younger sister, were growing up. And we all get married in our 20s. We didn't marry anybody one mile down the road, right? We met people. We left home. We went to college. We, my brother married somebody from Canada. I married somebody from Minnetonka. And uh, <laughs> it was awesome. And, uh, and my brother married somebody from pre- prestigious West Bloomington. And um, so, so, so they got married, and, and my sister married somebody from Austin, Minnesota at the time. So it, we stayed in the state more or less, but still, except for Canada, but we, we married people who didn't grow up anywhere near us. We met them in college or somehow we met them. So that's, that's the Mathers children getting married in our 20. Now, I'm going to let you finish the sentence. Today, modern romance, right? Finish the sentence. 35% of couples met online. online online. That is completely different. Can you imagine 15 children growing up in one house down the road, a mile away they grow up, and all of you sucked in extra oxygen on that one when I brought up that eight of them married each other, right? And, and that was common. That was common. You know what the issue is? It's opportunity. Who, who are you going to marry, Right? So you have a cell phone that's a smartphone, like it's a handheld computer, and it's also a communication device, right? You got one of those? Right. You have a singles bar in your hand. Do you, do you, do you understand? You have, 
if you have one of those, if you have one of those and you have the right app, in this room right now, you could be like, whoa, swipe. <laughs> Someone's enjoying this, yeah. <laughs> what app is that? What app is that? <laughs> right? I mean, so look at, look at this. Talk about opportunity. You have so many choices in, in how and who you meet. It's, it's explosive. Right? So if, if you're single, by the way, just a quick comment on this. I think that's awesome. I really do. I don't think how people use it is always awesome. But I think the fact that you have more choices, more opportunities, you, you people who are single and not married, and that's the same thing, um, you have phones that help connect. Because here's the deal. If you're a single person going to this church, our selection is not great. No. Um, <laughs> Oh, there's a single person at the lights. <laughs> okay, our selection is not plentiful. They might be great, but they're not plentiful. There's just, there's not, and the last thing I want you to do is go to some other church looking for single people. It's awkward, right? How many single people do you have to go to this church? So that's one of your first questions. But you've got to meet people. You, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to meet if you, if I mean, if you want to date, if you want to get married, if you want, if that's your preferred future, you want at least the opportunity. How do you meet them? Because I don't want you going to the bars. I don't want you putting out things into the into the white pages or whatever advertising. I don't want you to marry the person that your mother introduces you to. I want you to find. Well, maybe it could be, but you know, it's your mom. Um, I want you to meet somebody who is as passionate about God, as passionate about following Christ, about their goals, their perspective, their vision for the future that's compatible with you. And I, candidly, how awesome is it that there's algorithms out there to help you find that person? Now, please do background checks. Please pay attention. Not everybody who says they're zealous for Christ is. You've got to actually meet them and talk to them. Don't sign up for an online marriage. You know, just be wise about it. But what an awesome tool. In fact, let me, just, let me just affirm some of you. How many of you, you actually met, you, you met your spouse online? Is there anybody in the room who goes, I met my spouse online? There's one. Good. Still working. Okay, good. All right. So that's awesome. That's, I think that's a great technological you know, achievement of advancement. So my real point, though, is isn't that huge for change? It's just unbelievable change that's taken place. The ages we marry has changed. Right? You, you probably already know this. From 1950 to 1970, the ages, you probably didn't know this, but it stayed at about 23 for men, 20.5, the half year is significant uh, for women. Right? From 1980 to 2015, the ages have gone up. Right? So, so 2015 is the stat I have. 29.2 for men, years old. By the way, that has all kinds of things that are really challenging to go with it, to wait till you're almost 30. And then women are 27.1. Right? That's the average age in 2015. It might be a little bit older now. I'm, I'm not sure. So that made me go back to 1890 because that's the obvious thing to do. What do you think the average age of men and women were in 1890? Throw out some ages. 15, 12, you know. <laughs> right? So you think younger because they're on the farm and they need kids, right? That's kind of what goes through your head. Here's the numbers. This is going to be shocking. 26.1 for men. 22 for women. You want to know why? You want to know why? You want to know why? <laughs> so do I. Because <laughs> I have, I don't know. I don't know. 
<laughs> right? But this is the research. This is the data. So it's just like, that's incredible. Something was going on, and, and maybe it was they had to wait to actually inherit the farm before they would get married. I don't know what the answer is, but it's interesting. So if we marry has changed, there used to be, there was a time when that was not even a question. It was just a mission. Now young people are growing up and going, are you kidding? Get married? My parents are divorced. Their parents were divorced. It's a mess out there. There's nothing. I can't think of a single reason I would ever want to get married. You can get all the benefits and all the living together without that kind of commitment. It's a big question, right? This is the whole thing. Is this God's best or is this, can I opt out on it? You know, and, and so you start looking at some numbers for, um, what am I looking at? Married and, and never married for people 25 to 34 years old. And in 19, is that 50 I'm seeing? 1950, you could see that 80% of the people in that age range were in their first, were in a marriage, right? And less than 20% were not married, right? Now just fast forward through time, and in the years around tw between 2005 and 2010, we see the numbers are inverting. There's more people who are not married in that age range that are actually married. And you can see the, the trajectory of that. I think, that's, I think that's fascinating. That is so different because if you're, you know, 20, 30 years old in 1950, there's only 18% of the population available. Now if you're single, there's, a, there's more people who are single like you than there are that are, that are married. So then we look at another one. This is the divorce, uh, 144 years of divorce in the United States. So we go all the way back close to 1860, and that's just the divorce rate that you can see going. And what people are excited about is the fact that the divorce rate is actually coming down, right? Which, wow, that seems counterintuitive to our culture, right? Because marriages don't last and people don't get committed. But when you put the overlay of how many people are getting actually married, you start to go, okay, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. Less people are getting married and uh, less people are getting divorced well, because there's not that many people to get married. So that's the marriage and divorce. It's changing is my only point. Marriage has changed. Our perception of what marriage is, if we marry, has changed. How we court has changed. Okay, listen, young people. What court means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everything up to I do when you get married is courting. Okay, so you're dating, you don't know that you're courting, but you're courting. And we'll talk more about this. And, 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 you know, you get engaged and that's part of courting. And then you say, I do, and now you're not courting anymore because you did it. So you're getting married, right? So, so here's how we court in the past and in different places in the world. We arrange marriages. Two moms get together. Kids are great. They go to a matchmaker. And by the way, you need to know something. Arranged marriages often work well. Right, because they have different cultural expectations. They, they grew up thinking, someday my parents are going to arrange for me to get married. Right, male and female. And, then, and they meet in the morning, and they might be married in the afternoon, or they might wait six months, or whatever it is, but they get married. And, and this is very prevalent, in, especially in India, countries like that. And, and the India country, you know, their, their statement is, you Americans, you're like blazing hot when you meet and get married. And then... You get cold over time. We, we start off cold, and we get blazing hot, right? And, <laughs> right, why is that? Because they're working in their marriage. They have expectations that we're, gonna, we're going to build love. How can you not think you're going to build something when you're coming from nowhere? We think we build something, and that's why we should go. And so it's just a different perspective. I'm not saying it's a better. I'm just saying it's, 
it's different, but we shouldn't judge it. In fact, I would say for most of human history, <laughs> no one's gotten married like we do. No one's, well, I'm not talking about the phones now. I mean, just this freedom of dating and choosing and options. It's been built for them in most cases, and, and God has used it and blessed it. It, it depends on them kind of thing, right? So the typical pattern that we think of when we think of, in the United States anyway, is a period of dating, a period of engagement, waiting to get married, and then the actual wedding, and then a really big party that you can't afford. So that's kind of the order that, that, that we go for. Can you think of how that order has changed a little bit recently, last 10, 15 years? How would you, what, what's changed? How about this? Date, move in, engagement, wedding. So you go on three dates, then you move in, and then engagement, well, it's usually longer than that, but not that much longer, right? People, people are very, very quick. By the way, and there's a tremendous pressure in our culture for that. There has been for a long time. When Lori and I were in, in college, by the way, we, we old-fashioned or deeply spiritual or just scared, we waited till we got married to, to be sexually intimate, right? When we were in college and we were at a, a retreat kind of thing with our, our people we were going to school at the University of Minnesota, the nighttime came and we went to different places to sleep and they're like, what's wrong with you guys? Why aren't you sleeping together? And there was this pressure, and I, I, you know, well, the reason why is because we don't believe in doing that. We're, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We don't think that's the biblical teaching on this thing. And so we're waiting till we get married, and they thought that we were so stupid, right? That was 1981. So you younger people, I cannot imagine the pressure, because I felt the pressure. I can't imagine the pressure today where everyone is doing it, where there's no secrets, no shame, and I don't mean there should be shame, but there isn't. You know, no guilt, and, and everyone is endorsing it, including our parents are endorsing it. So it's, a, it's just, that's what's happening. When couples come in, that's almost always, and my goal, my goal is to help people honor God with their lives. So I think the fastest way to honor God is let's get married then, right? And we can talk more about that, and maybe it'll come up more in this message even. So the last way we court is we don't, because we go, ah, not getting married, but I'm just going to be with people be with people. Or maybe it's one person, but we're not getting married. So why we marry has changed. By the way, let me just pause for a moment. If you're wondering, where is Doug getting all this information? Um, actually, <laughs> ironically, from a popular comedian, comedian named Aziz Ansari. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, and I'll be corrected. Trust me, I'll be corrected later. But it doesn't matter. This is the guy. And the book is called Modern Romance. So let me just tell you, it is a book that he teamed up with a sociologist they put the research together. He, uh, he didn't write this for Christians. So there's lots of naughty words in it. There's also lots of really valuable information. Yeah, I read the book. All right, so, but why we marry ha has changed. And if you ask people 35 and younger what they're looking for in their dating, they, the most frequent answer is I'm looking for my soul mate. I'm looking for my my soulmate, right? We didn't say it that way when we were dating. We had this thing called, I'm looking for Mr. Right or Miss Right, right? And, but it really almost comes to the same thing. I'm looking for that perfect person that God has given me. I don't think, go back to the farm in the 1800s, I don't think that was their perspective. I think at best their perspective about marriage was, I'm looking for someone compatible to build a life with and we could become soulmates, 
right? We, they live on that farm. We live on this farm. This is very convenient. We could build a life together. They understand what farming is. I understand the hard work that farming is. We're farming children, and they get together, and, and they have their children, and they live a life, and depending on how they live it, they fall more and more in love every single day. This is kind of close to that. They start not as hot, but they end up hotter, right? We start really hot, and we're in danger of ending up cooler because the danger of soulmate and, and the danger of Mr. and Ms. Wright that I grew up with, the danger is we think we found the person, we get married to them, and after some time goes by, the flaws start to come out, our relationship starts to grow a little cold, and we go to work one day, and someone there listens to us. And empathizes, empathizes with us. And suddenly, we start to have our heart pound a little bit. And they feel like, wow, they're kind of soulish, right? Maybe they're my soulmate, and maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe that person isn't Mr. Right or Miss Right, and this person's my true soulmate. If you want to spiritualize it, this is the person God really wanted me. I just got, I jumped the gun. I got married too young, and blah, 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 and all of a sudden, you're disheartened and you're not on the same page for your marriage anymore, right? Which is why I like this much better. I like to find somebody compatible with, but I want the perspective of I'm going to build a life with that person. I'm choosing to invest. I'm choosing to do the work. I'm choosing to fall more and more in love. I'm not a victim of falling in love. I get to control that. I, love is a choice, and I'm going to make that choice, right? So now the question is, why have we changed? Why is, our, why is our whole society... The world's been doing marriage for a long, long time. Why is it changing so radically? And, and, it, and it is, and there's really two answers that sociologists point to. I'm not sure the right order, so here they are, sex and money and money and sex. Okay, those are the two things that sociologists point to and go, this is why it's, it's changing. Here's what's changed. Women, Right? Because women, when it comes to money, now have some. They are empowered. They didn't used to have. Because, why? Well, because women are now a part of our economy, and they are getting educated. In fact, the research shows that women are getting more highly educated than men, are going to be taking over the higher-paying jobs, and, and they don't need to find a man anymore. In, and then sex, birth control, right? Birth control changes everything because... As a population, we tend to be sexually involved. And if you have sex over time, somebody gets pregnant. And when they get pregnant, it was, it was the woman almost always who would quit school, quit their job, and take care of the kids. Well, there's got to be an income, so they would be very dependent on, on the men. right? By the way, I think it's absolutely marvelous that this is not the way it is today. It's a really, yes, it has issues to it, change issues, but... It's great. I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about men not getting their educations, men not getting their jobs. I'm concerned because pretty soon we're going to reverse this whole thing and men will need women to take care of them. And women would say, we already do. Come on, Doug. <laughs> right? But so this changes everything. It's a quick changing culture with quick changing when we're all playing catch up and it has changed marriage because women don't need to get married to find economic health and safety which is what everybody wants, right? And we don't need to get married, not me, men, but anybody to find sex because all we got to do is swipe the right direction, 
right? That's, that's part, of the, part of the hooking up thing that, that takes place. This is reality. This is our world right now. By the way, some of us who are older, aren't you thinking, thank God I'm old? Aren't you thinking, I don't need more options. Man, I would have liked to have grown up on the farm and just down the road, there's eight, 15 choices. <laughs> Swipe once, right? I mean... I, I mean, if, if nothing else, those of us who are older, right, we should, our hearts should be pouring out for, for young people in this, because it is a very, very complex world. We're going to talk more about that next week, technically dating we're going to talk about, but it's a very complex world. So, so marriage has, has changed. Marriage has changed. Marriage has changed. God's purposes for marriage are the exact same. God's purpose in marriage has not moved a bit. It was from creation to now, the purpose of marriage is exactly the same. It has everything to do with intimacy. It has everything to do with purpose and building a life together. It doesn't mean you're incomplete if you're single. That's not the point of it. But if you are married, that's God's intention for you. It's, a, it's an intimate, oneness, purpose-driven, um, life-meaningful stuff. Raising kids is only part of it. It's, it's following God together if you're a Christian. This is God's desire for you, right? So if, if you're a Christian. So let's kind of work on the background for that now. If God's purpose has changed, what does God want? And how did he create it? So first thing we need to know is marriage and sex. Sex is not dirty. It is God's ideas, and God doesn't have dirty ideas. So it's, it's a good idea, right? How do I know that? Well, because I go back to the beginning before we screwed things up. Humanity's always messed things up, Right? We go back to the beginning, we look at Genesis, and we start to look for what God intended, and it kind of jumps out at you, right? So Genesis chapter 1, just to remind you, chapter 1, in the beginning God created, and then the list of everything he created. Seven days, because we need some time increments. And we get to near the, the end, the last thing he creates actually is us, and it's in, found in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And here's what it says. It says, so God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, plural. Male and female, he created them, which means this. This is a room full of equals. We are equally created in God's image. We are not the same. We'll talk about that later in the series. Men and women are not the same. But we are equally, completely made in God's image. And when God looks at you, he sees a reflection of himself, at least what could be. Maybe may be a marred up reflection, but there's a reflection of himself. And then after he created them, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And that's the only commandment we've ever obeyed. <laughs> Fill the earth. Right? And, and you know what else he did next? I didn't put up the screen, but after each thing he created, what does God say as he looks at it? He says, it's good. But when he created men and women in his image and he looked at us, he didn't say it's good. He said, it's very good good. It's very good. There's very goodness in this room. There's very goodness in how we're made and, and sexuality. It's very good that God made us, right, with humanity this way. Now, we're going to flip to another perspective of the story, the Adam and Eve making. Now, so you understand, this is not a scientific description. This is, this is a Genesis description. And whether you buy into it exactly how it happened, the point is God did it, and we learn God's purposes through it. So Genesis chapter 2. Adam is alone. And God says, hey, Adam, what you doing? And he goes, I'm just alone. I'm alone. 
one is the loneliest number. <laughs> I'm lonely. He goes, well, let's name the animals today. So he goes out to a field, and God starts bringing the animals in. God, ah, anteater. Right? Anteater. Ah, elephant. Anteater's taken. Elephant. You're big. Um, zebra. Um, platypus. I feel so sorry for you. And so he... He names all the animals, and they come in. I think they kind of came in and pairs me by mixing up Noah's story. But they came into him. He named them. And at the end of it, God goes, how are you doing? He goes, still alone. <laughs> all alone. There wasn't one for me there. I looked through the whole list, and my, my mm, pouting, right? And so God goes, okay, Adam, I'm going to take care of this alone thing. And he, he anesthetizes him. And Adam goes to sleep. He pulls out a rib. Again, this is not a scientific description. He takes the rib. He clones it throws in an X chromosome, right? And, um, of course, that's not in the Bible. But he creates Eve. And when Adam comes to, he looks over and he sees Eve. And we hit verse 23. And he screams these words, At last! At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone, right? The rib's gone, right? Flesh from my flesh. Right? She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So this is, a, this is the Genesis way of Adam looking at Eve and saying, you complete me. <laughs> Literally, you complete me. <laughs> and she looks up and she, she goes, you had me at at last. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, here's the point of this. This is not just Adam and Eve because the story is being told to help us understand something, that God created men and God created women in his image. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to a woman who becomes his wife. I know it just says his wife, but that's kind of, they become husband and wife, and the two are united into one flesh, into one. And that one flesh is, is, is two things. It's a picture of intimacy. It's also a flesh thing. It's also sex. It's, and this is what sex is a picture of, intimacy, knowing. It's We were made to know and be deeply known. This is where we get satisfaction in life. It's relational stuff. To love and be completely loved for who we really are, right? And, and even to challenge and to grow and to become and to work together, that's all part of Genesis. I know the word helpers in there, but it, it implies we're going to help each other. And there's going to be some things for us to do. There's work to be done, and that comes out. You can go read through Genesis. It's all there. So after that verse, the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's a picture of being known. It's not about, it's not, about not having clothing on. It's true. That was part of it. But it's also a picture of they were, they were all in front of each other. There were no secrets. They were, and, and they felt no shame at all. Now, when I read through those verses, I always end up in the same place every single time. Way to go, God. Way to go. What an awesome description. What an awesome thing you created. This was such a good idea. Right? On bad marriage days, I may not be saying it as loudly, but on good marriage days, I'm going, what a great idea, God. Way to go. So, all I want you to get from that is this. Marriage and sex are God's idea. Sex isn't dirty. Sex is wonderful. Marriage is wonderful. can be wonderful. We're broken people, so it's not as wonderful as it should be. Right? The other thing I want you to know, and it comes out of that text, and you're gonna make, you might push back with me on this. Some of you may push back because I know we're part of our culture, but sex isn't just sex. 
sex is not just sex. Sex is not, it's not like a handshake. Handshake is a handshake. High five is a high five. Knuckles, elbows, because we're at church, we don't want to get germs. All that, all that stuff, looking, waving to somebody, all that is, is, it's just a wave. It's just a handshake. It's just, but sex is not just sex. There is sacred soul stuff involved in sex. Now, I can't quantify that for you. I can't measure it. I can't show it to you. I can't put it in a jar. But I absolutely know it's true, and I think I can convince you of it, that, that sex is completely different than anything else, and it's more meaningful and more soul stuff, and it has a sacredness to it. Even if you're arguing with me right now, I think I can convince you. So when a woman gets beat up, it's really, really bad. But what if she gets raped? Which one of those is going to leave the bigger scar? Which one of those is going to require, I mean, hey, getting, I've been robbed. It took me, and no violence involved. I got robbed. It took me three months to have to stop having bad dreams about that. Right? There's, that's nothing to getting physically beat up. And getting physically beat up is nothing compared to being raped. When, when children get sexually violated, we don't go, wow, you know, they, that's too bad they got physically kind of beat up about that one. We go, oh my gosh, this kid's going to have issues. This is so, we know it. This is why the, the, the doctor in Michigan who was with the gymnast, right? I'm always afraid to say it. Nasser? Did I say it right? Anyway, it doesn't matter. We all go, throw him away for life. Many of us think, don't try to rehabilitate this guy. What he did, the trust he violated, those kids are going to be in counseling. It's going to take them for, they're broken inside because they were touched in ways that, that it's so deep, it's so sacred, it's such soul stuff. And what I'm telling you is take that same respect about sexual violation and understand that the reason we feel so strongly about that is because of how God created us, that this is sacred this should not be taken from anyone. It should not be forced on anyone. It should never be sold. It should never be traded ch- cheaply or taken lightly. This is sacred. And if you're arguing with me right now and go, Doug, I've slept with lots of people, and it's just sex. If that's what you're thinking right now, I'm telling you, you've lost something, and I'm sorry to say it out loud, you've lost something very, very important because you've become numb. And it's a matter of how you've treated it that it starts to lose it's sacredness. You don't want that. You want it to be special, important, sacred, holy, soul stuff. Because this is where it's best. And this is why God, our Holy Father, is so protective about sex. We don't hear the protection because we're kids. What do kids think when parents are protective? They think it's restriction. They push back against it because God is limited to me. He's ruining my good time. He's against me. He doesn't want me to enjoy life. And so he's got all these stinking puritanical rules around me. And that's not it at all. God is the protective father who wants the very best for your future, for my future. He wants us to become everything. He created us in his image. We're very, very good. But when we read scripture, we hear restrictions over and over and over again. But they're not. They're protections. One of the first ones is when Moses goes up the mountain, comes down with the commandments. Commandment number seven, remember this? It's don't commit adultery. What does that mean? One wife, wife, husband, husband, wife, one. Everything else is adultery, right? And that's what he's saying. I'm sorry, this is it. You're not married. I'm sorry, this is it. You know, that's not your wife. That's not your husband. 
It's one. Now, the interesting thing Andy Stanley pointed out, he goes, that is such a unique passage, such a unique thing, because if, 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 if Moses was leading a cult, if he didn't, if it really wasn't God, he goes up the mountain, he comes back with commandments of how we're going to live, and it has that adultery restriction in there, protection in there, and he comes down. If he knew it was all fake, he never would have included that one. Because every single male cult leader, and male cult leaders are powerful, right? Because there's, apparently there's a cult following of people, has always leveraged the rules to benefit him sexually. Think through every cult you've ever read about in your life where some guy somewhere was doing And you start to read about the sexual part of it, and it's always leveraged. But Moses goes up, he comes down, and he goes, me too, one wife, one, no adultery. That's, that's the thing. And by the way, i got to throw this in. Some people go, well, Dave, King David had lots of wives. Yep, he did. Well, Solomon had a wife for every single day of the year kind of thing, and maybe for many years. And the answer is, yeah, he did. So when you read the Bible, some things are prescriptive, Hey, you should do this. That's prescription. And other things are description. Hey, here's what happened. And just because God didn't go, and that's wrong, doesn't mean it wasn't wrong. Right? If you wrote your life story out, you'll probably have a couple of things in there where it was wrong. Are you going to include a part that says, and God told me that was wrong? Probably not. You're just going to describe it. You're not endorsing it. You're just describing it. So you have to read Scripture carefully about those things. Right? So, so no adultery. Moses, Paul wrote about this. Here's how pretty strong... He was writing to the church in Corinth where prostitution was just normal, especially with religious things, right? So here's what he writes. He says, don't you, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20, don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? No, I didn't realize that. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute or anything outside of your marriage? You know, we can, we, that's the principle he's working with here. Never, and a woman shouldn't either. We can transpose this. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, which in their culture was normal, he becomes one body, one flesh with her. This is Genesis coming back, right? He becomes one with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one or one flesh. The person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's saying, hey, this picture of sex and marriage and this oneness is what God has for you with him. No, that doesn't mean you're having sex with God. It means that you're one spirit connected, right? And, and actually, you and I, if we have the Holy Spirit and God, we, we take God with us into everything. Whatever we do, we're bringing God into. We can't, so if you're joining with a prostitute, you're bringing God into that moment, right? So Christ says the two are united into one, but the person who's joined to the Lord is, is one spirit with him. So run from sexual sin, Every other kind of sin, you can duke it out. But run away, Monty Python, run away from sexual sin, right? No other sin so clearly affects the body, the person, as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against yourself, your own body, who you are. There's God's spirit inside of you. Right? He goes on, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not the temple anymore. It's you. You are the one who carries God, in a sense, from place to place. God lives inside of you, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you and was given to you by God. This has implications. So live a way that honors God. Don't take God into certain... It's not just about sex. It's about how we live, right? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price when Christ died on the cross, so you must honor God, must honor God with your body. What's he saying? 
This is sacred soul stuff. Sacred soul stuff. Hebrews 13.4, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. Come on, this, make that the place. Make that the, the not the goal, because singleness is fine, but make that the place, right? Sacred soul stuff. Drink water, Proverbs 5.15. This was written, uh, excuse me, this was written to a young man. It's wisdom literature. It was written to a young man, but it applies to women. We're sophisticated enough to transpose it. So here's what it says. It says, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your spouse, right? Your wife, your husband. Why spill water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? There's a euphemism there. Um, You get it, right? Why just keep it at home, not in the streets? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Well, they're not strangers. I kind of know them. That's not the point. Your wife, your husband is the point. Let your wife, your husband, be the fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, right? Your first wife is kind of what's implied there, your first husband. You know, that commitment should last. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. So you transpose it is he's a mighty buck. That would be the transfer of the man, right? <laughs> okay. Let, your, let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son or my daughter, with an immoral woman or immoral man or fondle the breast of a promiscuous woman? Don't do it. Don't do it. For the Lord sees clearly what we do, examining every path we take, right? And an evil person is held captive by their own sins. In other words, God's not out to punish, but, but because of what they do, the ropes catch them and hold them. We walk right into the, in, into the trap, and he will die for lack of self-control, and he or she will be lost because of great foolishness. Great foolishness. All this is God saying, come on, protect it. Come on, the right place, the right person, the commitment level. This is what marriage is all about. So here's the question that comes up. So what happens when we treat sacred soul stuff as if it isn't? What happens when we, when we take God's design and we go, you know what, God? I believe the culture. That Okay. I believe the culture because our culture says that if sex is this ball, we can do whatever we want with it, right? I mean, you know, we can try to spin it. Oh, pretty good, right? We can throw it to somebody. They throw it back. We can dribble it. We can kick it. We can throw it. We can punch it up in the air. And it will all, it might, when it hits, it might compress a little bit. We might get hurt once in a while, but it comes back to shape. It's great recovery to it, Right? So that's what our culture says. That's what society says right now. You know that's true. Actually, it's not true. Our culture really doesn't say that the sex is like that. What our culture really says is that this is our sex life. (laughs) Right? And then if you're not, let's see if we can do that. (laughs) And what this means is it's the most important Thing. I had a, a gal been married 58 years, to, not today, but 58 years this morning. She told me, she goes, you know, at, at, at our age, actually, he came to me first and he said, you know, when you get to our age, your spouse says to you, you know, do you want to go upstairs and have sex? 
And he goes, you got to pick one. (laughs) So those are the kind of jokes you like. I got it. Our culture says that sex is the meaning of life. It's the biggest deal. If you're not getting it, you're, you're, you're missing out, and it's got us into all kinds of trouble, right? That, that that's what matters. And God says, first of all, sex is beautiful. It's created for you, but it's not the meaning of life. It's important, but it's not this, right? I mean... The older couple who, I mean, people get injured, people get tired. They, they, can't, they don't necessarily have sex their whole lives, right? And this woman said to me, you know, we are more and more in love every day because we, we're soulmates. We've become soulmates. We've done our lives together. God says, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, but you can't bounce it any way you want. You can't do anything you want with your sex life. If you, just, if you do that, what's going to happen is you're going to get hurt. And it's going to hurt you in a soul place. And to cover up that hurt, you might go out and do it again and again and again, and you get numbed up. But pretty soon, you can't put those pieces back together again. And you've got all this invisible pain in your life. Our culture says, hey, it's a rubber ball. It'll bounce back. Do what you want. There's no rules here. There's no regulations. And all the rules and regulations sound like God wants us to miss out. Have you ever thought that, those of you who are Christians? Those of you who grew up in a Christian home? Wow, why does God have to be so restrictive about this? Why are there so many rules? And the answer is because it's fragile, because it's soul stuff, because it matters. At the end of Christmas every year, Lord and I take the ornaments and we put them into boxes and we pack them with tissue paper protective things. Why? Because they're fragile. Because if not handled carefully, they'll break. We put them on the holy sacred shelf for Christmas decorations. (laughs) Nobody's allowed to go up there and touch them, right? This is what marriage is. Marriage is the box. It's a place of safety and commitment. It's where sex is supposed to be stored and kept. And there's great freedom and there's great joy and there's great beauty. But you need the box. Sex without, and it is a commitment word, the commitment of marriage always has an aspect of fear. It always hurts your soul, even if you can't feel it and recognize it, because it's not quantifiable. That's always true. Now, real quick, if you're not a follower of Christ, this is just God's advice for you. If you're a follower of Christ, these are his ways for us. When couples come in, and they do, and they say, hey, um, we want to get married. I go, well, where are you at right now? Well, we're living together. And I go, so do I need to teach you what God says about that? No, we know. You know, do you need to know the right order? Is that a confusing? No, we know. I said, so to be clear, you love God, you believe in God, Jesus died for you, you believe that he is all knowledgeable, all wisdom, he created you, knows you inside and out. But when it comes to this part of your life, you don't trust him. Like, oh, I just want to be clear. And then I help him get married. Right? But I want, the, I want all of us to understand, when we turn our ways on God, our backs on God's ways, you have to figure out whether I'm telling the truth or not. You have to figure out what God is telling you. When we turn our back on God's ways, 
We're not trusting him. It is a, I don't, God, you're my leader, and accept, accept. So here's the other question that's going to come up right now. What if I'm already broken it? Doesn't matter for me. I've already screwed it up. No, 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 no. That's not what God says. He doesn't say it doesn't matter now. In fact, they, they, they caught a woman in adultery, John 8. They caught a woman in adultery, which is interesting because they caught the woman but not the man in adultery. Anyway, they caught the woman. They dragged her to Jesus, threw her at the ground, and said, we get to stone her. The Bible says we got to stone her because we caught her in adultery. And what do you think, Jesus? And they're trying to set him up because they know Jesus has this big compassion streak in him. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, let's do it. Let's do it only. Here's the deal. I bring out your rock. Okay, the one without sin, you get to throw the first rock. Because we're going to do this in an organized way. Right? And then he kneels down. He starts writing. I don't know what he was writing. I, I wonder, I wonder if he was writing out like, Bob, you cheated on this. And dates, you know, <laughs> whatever. Like he, like he knows their lives or something. And, but what happened was from oldest to youngest, they started dropping their rocks. And they walked away until it was just Jesus and this broken woman caught in adultery because she was doing sacred soul stuff in the wrong way. And, And then here's what it says happens next. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Where are the people who want to condemn you? Didn't even one of them stay to condemn you? Right? And she says, no, Lord. They're gone. And then Jesus said, this is really important. Neither do I. Now, listen, all of us are that woman. There's not one of us who is sexually without fault. Jesus made that really clear when he said, hey, if I tell you, if you even look at a woman or a man in the wrong way, if you even have thoughts of things going on in your brain, you're already guilty of it. He was pointing out that we're corrupted from the inside out, not just by our behaviors. We are sinful people. I needed every single drop of blood from Jesus that you need no matter who we are or what we've done, that she needs. So he says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. But I am here to give you wisdom. I am here to bring wholeness to your life. So go and sin no more. Go and change. Go and chart a new course. And I don't know what happened to her. I'm, I'm going to guess she became a follower of Jesus. He saved her life. God is in the business of making us whole again. But I will say this. When it comes to the sexual part, if crimes have been committed against us, it takes time. It takes love. It takes walking with Christ. It takes discovering wholeness again. It is not an overnight process to get through the things that we've done to ourselves. This is sacred soul stuff. And if we drop it, there are, we need holy duct tape to put it back together again. And, and it's a process, but I want you to hear this. There's no judgment. There's none. There's only, let's, let's choose a better path. Let's change our lives. Let's follow God together. So we're done after I pray. But as we leave, I um, bought a whole bunch of ornaments. They're in the back there. And on your way out, I want to encourage you to take an ornament for yourself. It represents who you are before God sexually, this gift that God has given you. And I want you to think about, so God, what do you want me to do differently? What do you want me to, how should I live? What does it mean? You know, we've done this same illustration in the past, and some people have taken it, and they said, I'm going to put it in the place where I'm most, sexu- most tempted sexually to do things I shouldn't do. Some people put them on their computers. One guy, I was so proud of him, he took it to, he did a lot of business trips. He packed it in carefully in his suitcase for every single business trip. When he got to the hotel, he would take it out, and he would put it on the television, so he'd see that red ornament looking at him. 
and it would help modify his behavior on his business trip. I think he was watching shows and stuff like that. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going I'm to honor God and my wife on my trips. I'm going to change. Maybe there's somebody you need to give it to. This is a really tough one. And go, I want to tell you about what I learned, what God showed me this last week. I want to give you this. You can take an extra one. Give you this red ornament, and I want you to know this is God's gift to you, but it's also God's gift to me, and I'm not going to be involved in this relationship anymore. This is not a godly thing. This is not honoring him. I'm going to trust him. I'm not mad at you. I don't judge you. I know you're probably going to be hurt by this. I'm sorry, but I'm done. I don't know what you have to do. I don't know what you should do. This is between you and God. I just want to give you a a concrete way of saying, okay, God, I'm going to take another step. Here's what I'm going to do. And then pursue that adventure of following Jesus. All right? We're going to pray. God, that was a lot. And my prayer is that you were found in the midst of all of it. That we discover your wisdom and the joy of following you. That you love us and want the best for us. And that we could find our way to trusting you completely. But I know that's a journey for all of us. God, for those of us who feel broken right now, would you help us feel your healing hand in our lives? God, for those of us who need to do something to to change our lives, would you give us the courage to do it? And God, for those of us who are sitting here celebrating the marriage we have, we go, you know what? It's getting hotter. It's getting more soul mate-like all the time. God, I give you thanks for that. And God, most of all, help us realize that you are one with us and in us. And we cannot escape you. And everything we do and everywhere we go, you are a part of. You are here. God, I give you thanks for your word and the truth. Help us to apply them in Christ's name. Amen.